0: Amen. Thank you, Ms. Diane. If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of James, chapter 5. You're turning there. I'll share with you. I, uh, I was kind of thumbing through or flipping through Twitter. And I came across a tweet that was ascribed to C.S. Lewis. And uh, I say ascribed to C.S. Lewis because he's not alive. And so uh, some of you may have that feed. I don't know. But anyway, the the tweet, I did some research and I discovered that it came out of his book, Mere Christianity. And it stated this There is a difficulty about disagreeing with God, He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You could not be right and he wrong any more than a stream can rise higher than its own source. When you are arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It is like cutting off the branch you are sitting on. So there are times when we approach a passage of scripture that proves particularly difficult for us to hear and for us even to apply in our own lives. Personally, it becomes very difficult for us to take a passage of Scripture that we hear or maybe read through. Maybe there's even a passage of Scripture that we don't want to read through because we know it's so very difficult for us to apply in our own lives. But when such is the case, we do well to hear the counsel of C.S. Lewis. This morning, perhaps, is one of those passages. If you've opened up to chapter 5, Verse 1, say amen. Let's read. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. The title of the message this morning is Caution, Danger Ahead. You might see where we are heading as we have read the passage, but let us pray. Father, as we approach this passage this morning, I pray that you would give us insight from heaven. Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds to comprehend and to understand. God, I pray that you would be merciful toward us gentle in your dealing with us father help us to be humble before you help us to come before you as your vessels willing and even ready to yield our hearts and our minds to you for your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces to the division of joint and marrow soul and spirit it is a discerner of the truths and the intents of our hearts and so we pray god that you would speak into our lives today that you would draw us near by your grace, that you would give us hearts that long to love your word and give us minds to comprehend your word, Father, and give us a hunger and a desire for your holiness that we would live out and apply your word in our lives. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As I approach this passage this morning, I realize the difficulty for me personally. And I must confess that I struggle personally to identify where the line ought to be drawn in my own life between the cultural influences that have unknowingly and have unwittingly skewed my perception and possessing of a biblical worldview. I realize that that's that's a tension that we live with, right? I mean, that's a tension that you and I live with daily, there is this struggle that we walk through and, and we recognize that our biblical worldview, there, there are times in life where we recognize our, our biblical worldview has been really uh, shaped by some cultural influences or influencers in our lives. And consequently, the struggle at times to identify these cultural influences in my life at, at the point at which they counter biblical wisdom is difficult to say the least But I think if we're all honest this morning, we must admit at some level that we are all working through being in the world and not of the world. Though James is not directly addressing the believers in the church in this particular passage in verses 1 through 6. It's for this reason, though, that I I think he, he challenges the believers to hear hear the caution, he challenges us this morning to hear the caution that he, he is sounding, the warning that he indirectly, really indirectly shouts to us and shouts at us. That is to say, in verses 1 through 6, he's addressing a group that is there, that has, uh, they, they have really uh, oppressed those who are in the church. He identifies this group like last week, but this week he identifies this group as those who are the rich, he says. Verse 1 of chapter 5, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. And so for us, James is really, he, he lays before us some very graphic pictures in verses 1 through 6. And if you notice this week, even in the, the worship guide, the, the front cover, the scripture references chapter 5 verses 19 and 20. I I couldn't find a verse in verses 1-6 through that would really be an exhorting verse for us to read as we were coming into worship this morning. It's a tough passage. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5 say, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. I pray that God would be so gracious with us this morning that he would turn our hearts away from sin back to him. I want to begin this morning with the first point, and it's this, that there are disastrous consequences of abusing wealth. I think that's really the heart of what James is driving home here. That's what he's, he's speaking to. He's speaking to these wealthy uh, landowners, these farmers who have really abused the poor in the community. And so the first scene we have is really one of, it's a disturbing scene if you really think about it for a moment and meditate on it. He says, come now you rich, and then he gives this, this invitation to do something, weep and howl. Weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. This is really a difficult scene if we, if we just kind of conceptualize for a moment. The charge is to weep, to cry out. But then he describes what that looks like. He says, howling, moaning, wailing. This howling and this moaning. and This is not, I want you to hear, this is not the loving entreaty that we see in other places where James calls to his brother's Hear this, brethren. No, this is, this is instead a, a harsh prophetic denunciation. It's not an invitation to repentance for the people in the church. Instead, this is a picture of the reality of God's judgment that's coming upon these wealthy landowners. And the picture of commanding them to weep. Realizing the miseries that are coming upon them, the, the wailing, the crying out, the mourning, we really can't begin to imagine the difficulty of this scene. Though I've encouraged you to, it's really tough to begin to imagine what this scene really looks like and, and what it's about. It's a retching scene. It's a retching of one's soul. This is a brokenness and an utter despair. There is no lower point to be than in this scene. That James is describing. This is a gut-wrenching, heart-tearing, life-despairing hopelessness that never fades away that he is describing here. He's speaking of eternal judgment and condemnation at the end, at the judgment throne. That's what James is describing. And he's telling these wealthy landowners to weep and to mourn. You know, in this day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He seems to be, well, he's talking to those who seem not to be bothered by the fact that God sees all things. In fact, they have lived their life with such disregard to the commands of God, and they've even lived as if God does not exist. Not much different than the professing believers in chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Who say one thing with their mouth, yet with their life, they live something very different. They say that they believe in God, yet they go on and make plans as if God does not exist or God is not in control and they are in control. And so this challenge that James lays before these rich landowners is one that we would do well to heed caution we see what's happening. We see the destruction in the midst of, or the midst of the destruction that is coming upon them. And there are disastrous consequences that James puts forth in this passage for all those who follow in this way. And in this denunciation of the wealthy landowners who have defrauded the poor, James is indirectly warning us that there are disastrous consequences when worldly wisdom guides our worldly wealth. When worldly wisdom guides the temporal money, the temporal wealth that he has entrusted to us. And James is showing us that it's disastrous that these wealthy landowners are living as if This is life at its best. This is the best that life has to offer. James is is saying it's disastrous that a love for money and, and a love for money has influenced them to love money more than they love God. In fact, that money would be their God. It's disastrous that they would harm others for the sake of their own gain. These are disastrous consequences of wealth taking root in the life of these landowners and really directing everything that they do. In this passage, I want to give you a... um, I want to change up how it's laid out maybe in your outline there. I want us to see the four indictments that James levels against these wealthy landowners... I want to see that first, and so I I want to skip verses 2 and 3 and draw our attention first to verse 4. Because in this passage, James gives four indictments against these rich landowners. The first one I want us to see is in verse 4, where he says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That is to say that these farmers had hired out workers to mow and to harvest their fields. But then they refused to pay the wages due to the farmers. And James pronounces this judgment against them by saying that the pay of the workers cries out from your very bank accounts. The pay of the workers that's still in the, in the pockets of the wealthy landowners, he says, cries out against you. In fact, these landowners had been living and operating in such, in such a way that they had no regard for the poor of their day. You get it, you see that and in the midst of having no regard for the poor of their day, these poor uh, these poor workers would live hand to mouth basically, and because of that, the landowners would well they would they would hold back the pay that was due to these farmers that would be working their fields. It was unjust. it was wrong it was fraudulent they defrauded those workers and James says behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields has been withheld by you it cries out against you you're guilty but not only does it cry out against you he says It cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting that you have defrauded, it has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This term for Lord of hosts is a significant term. It calls to mind the Old Testament title of, of God as we see through the prophet Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. The Lord of hosts is God Almighty. He is the one who is in control of legions of angels. He is the one who is mighty over everything. It was David when he went to fight Goliath that he cried out to the Lord of hosts on behalf of the people of Israel. God is a mighty God. And what James is saying here is that the Lord of hosts has heard the outcry of the unjust or the ones who were treated unjustly and he is ready to exact vengeance upon those who have done unjustly. Come now you rich, weep and howl. Verse 1, for your miseries which are coming upon you. Perhaps their thought was that since the poor really can't do anything and no one knows what's going on, it, it really doesn't matter. But you know, that's exactly the thing that James is trying to contrast here. And what James is trying to show us here is that these wealthy landowners in their cheating of these poor workers they were living presumptuously before God they were taking advantage of others but he's showing us and reminding us that God the Lord of hosts sees all things he knows all things there's nothing that escapes his eye but there's a second indictment that he lays out as well in verse 5 And the second indictment is that they were living a life of self-indulgence. And it is that a life of self-indulgence is sin. Look in verse 5. He says, You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Their lives were filled with pursuit of wanton pleasure that's what he's saying here in verse 5 luxurious living they they, they would have they would have been on the, uh, the the lifestyles of the rich and famous show today right this is luxurious living they were living very luxuriously they were living in such a way as they were satisfying their own pleasures looking out for their own pleasures enjoying their ivory couches And what James is saying here is that they were living in a way that was selfish, indulging their own desires, going outside of the bounds of how one ought to live. They were living luxuriously and living voluptuously, literally. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, the prophet writes, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor or the needy. So you get the picture of what's happening. Their barns are full of grain. Their fields have been harvested. They've got all the pay in. They've collected. They've made the profit. And then they're sitting there withholding the wages from the poor and storing up their own wealth and adding to their own wealth for the sake of their own comfort and for the sake of their own ease makes us mindful of Luke chapter 16 verse 19 which is the story of the rich the rich man and Lazarus there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed He desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame, in verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in a like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. I think what we need to understand and see from James in this second indictment. That a life of self-indulgence is sin is particularly for us. I mean, we understand what was going on here. We understand the self-indulgence that these these farmers, these workers, who are, these, these rich landowners were living in. But particularly for us, I, I want to throw caution to us that we must be careful that the American dream doesn't become messed with our biblical worldview. And the question I would ask us this morning is, what do we pursue? Are we living self-indulgent lives like those that James is Speaking against. What do we pursue in our own lives? What does our own financial picture look like for our family? What do we pursue? I've heard of one popular Christian financial guru. He said this. And I I took issue with it when I heard it. Not that I have all things figured out. But he said this. "If, If you will live like no one else now, then... Later, you can live like no one else. And what disturbed me about that is it promotes this idea of self-indulgent living. It promotes this idea of certainly paying off debt and we need to do that, but then also in the same vein of, of striving for amassing wealth and striving for amassing all that we can so that we live like paupers now, and we live like no one else later. And I think it misses the whole point of, of the economy of God. And the economy of God is that we would walk with Him, follow Him, we would walk according to His ways, and that even in our wealth, in everything, as we'll see this morning, in our wealth we are submitted to Him so that we are able and free to give as He calls us to give that we are not in financial bondage, but that we are able and willing to give freely. And so he says in verse 5, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. First, I kind of struggled as to what this means. And the picture offered in verse 5, though, is one of judgment. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter he tells to these wealthy landowners and and what they have done it 's the same picture of of a of a cattle being fattened in order to be slaughtered and what what these wealthy have done is they have heaped up their own wealth and they have heaped up uh, their own self indulgent living so that they have become fattened and wealthy and then at the same time, there are the poor and the needy who are being abused and they're going without food and they are hungry and they are being robbed and they are being mistreated and being done wrong. And the picture is that these rich have, much like the rich man and Lazarus, have, they have fattened their hearts in the day of slaughter and that the judgment of God will come upon them. But there is a third indictment as well. And the third indictment is in verse 6. He says, you... You have murdered. You have condemned and put to death. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, it's it's unclear the exact nature of how they have... Murdered the righteous man. But clearly what has happened. The rich have oppressed the righteous. He, they have oppressed them socially. They have treated them unjustly. They have, they have skewed the courts. And turned the courts to be in their favor. So that their sin and their oppression. And their transgression. Goes unnoticed by the courts. So that the poor man continues to have. Unjust sentences. And the poor man continues to. Live hand to mouth. And is unable to even defend himself. And so there is no justice for the poor man, for the righteous man. He is continually put down by the rich. But I think we have a fourth indictment that I want to move to quickly here. And the fourth indictment, we see it in verses 2 and in verse 3, where he says, Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. I think the last indictment that he brings that I want us to see this morning, the last indictment is hoarding, that hoarding wealth violates God's will. Hoarding wealth violates God's will And we see this here in verses 2 and 3. And so the second point I want us to see this morning, not only uh, are there disastrous consequences when uh, when we misuse wealth, I want us to see the eternal perspective that God gives us, that James gives us here on temporal wealth. There's an eternal perspective on temporal wealth that I want us to see. James offers us this eternal perspective on temporal wealth by pointing out that riches do not truly endure. Do you see that in verse 2? Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver, they've rusted. You know, when we think about riches, we don't normally think of them as rotting, do we? I mean, do you think about gold or silver rotting? Do you, do you think about garments rotting? Not normally. I think there's a point, though, that James is making here. And the the point is that he wants us to understand the stench that comes with the rotting of the wealth. The rotting of in, in, in the temporal nature of the wealth that we have on this earth. Your riches have rotted. That is, the grain that they have, the actual food that they have, they have stored up maybe in these big... Uh, these big grain silos, and he says your riches have rotted. All of this food that you have stored up and you've even held from others, it has begun to rot. It stinks. There's a stench there. Another visible picture that James gives us. He says your garments have become moth-eaten. And so really just showing us the temporal nature of all of the riches that we have in this life, right? Have you ever pulled out a sweater from... Uh, from the drawer and you open it up and you're about to put it on and you see that there are holes all in it. You ever done that? Uh, Tara has. I, I remember whenever we, we were, uh, she pulled out this nice sweater. She had gone and gotten this nice sweater the year before. She wore it a couple of times and put it in the drawer and the next year comes around. It's cold outside, of course, and she's ready to put this sweater on and she pulls it out and she goes to put it on and she realizes that there are holes eaten all in it. The moth has gotten in the drawer and has eaten the fabric away, has eaten holes in the garment. I think what James is teaching us here is that the wealth of this world, it's, at best, it's transient, it's temporal, it, it doesn't last. In fact, Job says, man, waste away like a rotting, rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Of course, there's no use to put on a garment that has been eaten by moths. It's been ruined. It's been destroyed. And then he says, not only have your garments become moth-eaten, but your gold, your gold and your silver, it's rusted. And you and I know that gold and silver doesn't really rust. I mean, it, it, it endures. It, it doesn't rust. But there's a point that James making, is making here as well. He's showing us really the temporal nature of, of even the most enduring element and the enduring valuable wealth that we have it still in and of itself it's very temporal it it does not last i think it was colonel sanders who said there's no point in being the richest man in the graveyard right think about it the gold and the silver that he's talking about here this rust it it just diminishes it it goes away He's speaking proverbially here to to highlight that even the most enduring and temporal wealth it does not last. It causes me to think of Matthew chapter six verses nineteen through twenty one in Matthew six. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question that we really come to here is that what, what lies behind this life of wealth for these pagan oppressors? I think the answer that we see in this passage, what lies behind this is a heart of greed. What lies behind this life of wealth is a, a heart of greed. They, they haven't just obtained wealth, they've become hoarders of their wealth. They've become enslaved to their own wealth so that they don't act with justice, nor love mercifully, nor walk humbly before God. Instead, they are their own God. God. Instead, they want to see their own ends met. They live self indulgently. In fact, they see themselves as accountable to no one, especially not to God. They've believed a lie and will suffer the disastrous consequences. It's disastrous that they've missed what really matters in light of all eternity. They've entrusted their heart and their soul to the temporal treasures that have promised the good life now at the expense of eternity. And the only enduring treasure, I want you to hear this, the only enduring treasure worthy of entrusting your heart and soul to is faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question I would ask us this morning is, what truly brings satisfaction and fulfillment to our hearts? What truly can bring satisfaction and fulfillment to your heart? And the answer is being united with Christ. Being found in Christ, that is what can truly bring satisfaction and fulfillment to our hearts. And so James levels this indictment of hoarding against these men. And this indictment is that God has supplied the temporal wealth according to his design so that it might be used for the good of his kingdom. Not for storing up and hoarding wealth so that it might rot. You know, the picture comes to my mind of uh, this show on, I think it's on Discovery, I'm not sure. Have you seen Hoarders before? Have you seen that? Have you at least been flipping through? And if you haven't, I'll explain it to you, but the uh, basically the show finds people that are hoarders and they seek for intervention, and so I don't want to speak in a way that uh, is derogatory. I understand that people who are in that position, they have struggles, and But the point that I want to share is that uh, oftentimes they show houses and people have gotten to a point where there might be a little path to walk through the home in order to get to a chair, but literally there are things that are just piled up waist high around in the whole house. And oftentimes it's not uncommon to find that perhaps there was a, uh, a, a pet animal that had gone missing a few months back. And as they're cleaning out and, and, uh, and removing all the debris out of the house, they end up coming across that animal that's been deceased for a while. And so you see that uh, these people are, are suited up with, uh, with these white suits and masks on because of the stench that is just really bad. I think that's kind of what james is saying here regarding our hoarding of wealth before god our hoarding of our own self-indulgences and hoarding of our own material gain and our own wealth before god hear what the scripture says about this hoarding that was going on he says there rusts your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's really a graphic picture, isn't it? Have you ever seen or can you think about flesh that would be consumed by fire? closest I've seen to that is maybe on the grill when I put a piece of chicken on the grill to grill it. But if you think about it for a moment, it's such a disturbing image, is it not? That the flesh would be consumed by fire. And the testimony, this indictment, the testimony is that they're rust. These things which, which God has given to these wealthy, that they might promote His kingdom, that they may use it for God's glory. These things which God has given, they, it's, been, it's been withheld unjustly. And it's been taken away from the poor. And it's been stored up for self-indulgent living and the rust of of these things that don't rust. He said, this rust, it will cry out against you, and it will consume your flesh like fire. It will cry out against you that you've not sought God for the purpose that it has been entrusted to you, and it will consume your flesh. And the picture of this devouring flesh, it ought to make our stomachs turn. We must recognize the danger inherent in obtaining wealth. For our temporal pleasures at the expense of our eternal pleasure. 1 Timothy 6 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, God cares about where our hearts are in all of this. Are we seeking to serve ourselves? Are we seeking to serve Him? We must understand that the dangers of pursuing wealth are real, and we must be careful to pursue God's desire and will for using the wealth that He has entrusted us with. Uh, I want to be clear. I know that there are so many, so many nuances as we. Think about this and consider our wealth living in the wealthiest nation on earth in the history of the world. We all have luxuries at our fingertips that other countries just don't even know about. And so I, I, I want to maybe offer a, a balance here. Does this mean that we're wrong to have it's sinful to have an IRA or a retirement account, any kind of uh, savings accounts or our investments? No, it doesn't mean that these things are wrong. But hear and understand what James is saying. These things are not wrong, but he's cautioning us to the danger ahead. He's cautioning us to the dangers that that come and the disaster that can come from from abusing our wealth. And he's cautioning us to be faithful, to follow God and have an eternal perspective on the temporal wealth that God has given us. So I end in the same way that I began CS Lewis said there's a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning and power are com- your reasoning power comes. You could not be right and he wrong any more than a st- than a stream can rise higher than its own source. When you're arguing against him, you're arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It's like cutting off the branch you're sitting on as we approach passages like this in scripture and we examine our own hearts before the lord considering our wealth and how god would desire to use what he has entrusted to us for his kingdom it really is about where is our where is my heart before the lord right where is your heart before god how are you using your wealth for the glory of god believer Are you investing in earthly treasure or in heavenly treasure? I think that's a sticking point for many of us. We may not consider ourselves to have um, fat savings accounts or bank accounts, but when we think about the things that we invest our money in, are we investing in earthly or in heavenly treasure? Then I would ask you to consider this. What is the heavenly treasure that you are investing in. What is the heavenly treasure in your life that you are investing in? How are you investing in the kingdom of God with the wealth that He has entrusted you with, believer? It's not our desire to try to accrue more wealth for the sake of comfortable living, but it is our desire to please God in walking with Him and using what He has given us for His glory and for His kingdom. However, he leads us in whatever way he leads us. What is the heavenly treasure treasures that you are investing in? I'm going to close us in prayer. I want to invite you this morning to consider before the Lord. How he's challenging you, What, what are the ways that God is speaking into your heart and what challenges he laid before you this morning and. As we prepare in a moment to partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to challenge you to confess that sin that's in your heart or in your life, anything that He has revealed to you, and come before Him seeking to be clean and pure as you partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. Let us pray. Father, as we come before You, Lord, we know, I know, there are areas in my own life where I would want to be selfish with what you have entrusted to me. So God, I pray for your forgiveness, repenting of that. Pray for each of us this morning that we would have the strength and the courage to confess that, even though we don't know what it might look like. We, um, I pray for those who are struggling to confess that this morning. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes and our mind to show us, help us to search out your will, your direction, your working in our lives. And I pray, God, that you would give us strength to respond to you in a way that, uh, that brings you glory, in a way that honors you, in a way that honors your name in our lives and just shows that we are Christ followers. And so, Lord, we pray for your strength this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As the music plays this morning, I want to invite you just to uh, have a time of continuing to pray. Uh, And confession before the Lord.